turn with me to Luke chapter 14. Today as we continue our studies through Luke, we're beginning a section in chapter 14 where over uh, the next few weeks, Lord willing, we will see Jesus interacting with many people at a single dinner party, one banquet. And he'll begin tonight in the passage that we're looking at, uh, dealing with the question of what is lawful on the Sabbath. This is familiar. We've seen this already in Luke. And this is the last time we will see it in Luke's gospel. This is, in a sense, as far as Luke's gospel goes, uh, the last word from Christ on the Sabbath day. Although there's a lot that's come before it uh, and much uh, that uh, God's people have to say after uh, this interaction. But this is the last time that Jesus will interact with the Pharisees regarding what is lawful on the Sabbath. And today we're going to give our attention to God's word as we find it. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, and reading to the end of verse 6. That's on page 873 of most ESVs, if you've not yet found that passage. Luke chapter 14, 14, beginning in verse 1, and reading through verse 6. Before we read God's word together, please join me again in prayer as we seek God's blessing upon our study. O Lord our God, giver of all good gifts, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who carried along men of old as they wrote your words so that we would hear them, so that we would, in a sense, hear you speaking your very words to us through their ministry. Help us, O Lord, to be attentive to your word, to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest so that we may know the way of truth and trust in Jesus whom you sent into the world, we pray in his name. Amen. And now please stand with me as we give attention to the reading of God's word in Luke 14, beginning in verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. You may be seated. In 1975, a young man named Jimmy was brought to Dr. Oliver Sacks for a neurological evaluation. Jimmy was 49 years old. Uh, He seemed to have a cheerful disposition. He was uh, engaged with those who would speak to him. He entered the room with a smile and a handshake and, and introduced himself to Dr. Sacks. And then, during the interview, it seemed that Jimmy could could answer gladly just about any question that the doctor asked him. Questions for him mostly about his childhood memories. Questions about the home that he grew up in, the school that he went to, the friends that he had. Uh, Questions about entering the Navy in 1943. Jimmy served during World War II on a submarine. And he still knew uh, Morse code. He still remembered uh, the Morse code that he used. And he remembered, it seemed, almost every detail of his time in the Navy 
right up to 1945, which is where his memories completely stopped. Jimmy suffered from Korsakoff's syndrome. It is a rare memory disease, uh, a disorder that's sometimes marked by severe amnesia. Uh, Jimmy didn't have any of the, the normal degenerative, debilitating symptoms that go along with most types of dementia or Alzheimer's or things like that. He, he seemed pretty together except for the fact that he had no memory and he could make no new memories of anything that happened after 1945. So Jimmy still believed that he was a 19-year-old sailor at home from the war. And when Dr. Sachs reached for a mirror and showed it to him, he was horrified. He thought something was going on. He was going crazy or someone was playing a trick or some horrible thing was happening. And so to calm Jimmy down, the doctors led him over to a window where he could see a park that was below the hospital and watch a few minutes of a ball game. And after a few quiet minutes, Jimmy turned around and saw the doctor and his face lit up with a smile and he stuck out his hand to introduce himself. And for the rest of his life, Jimmy lived a perpetual uh, experience of deja vu. He became a resident of uh, the memory care unit in the hospital and he met Dr. Sachs for the first time at least a few times every week. Well, by this point in Luke's gospel, you might begin to wonder uh, if the beloved physician himself, or at least the Pharisees in the gospel, are struggling with their memories. Chapter 14 begins with deja vu all over again. This is another clash uh, between Jesus and the influential teachers of his day, uh, regarding what is allowed on the Sabbath day. This is the fourth such altercation in Luke. We've seen this now four times on four separate Sabbaths, and each time it follows basically the same pattern, though it's changed a little bit. It, it always begins with the Pharisees or their, their cohorts watching Jesus uh, on the Sabbath day and seeing something that they don't like. And then either they or Jesus raises the question of what is allowed, what is lawful, on the Sabbath, and then they all end with Jesus giving some kind of a challenge to them that leaves his opponents shamed and sulking. This passage is very much like what we have seen already, and though it was in spring, uh, just a chapter ago, in chapter 13, beginning in verse 10, is the third of the Sabbath clashes. Uh, and we have seen this over and over again, uh, and, and that itself ought to grab our attention. Luke, as I said, has, uh, has uh, recorded clashes with the Pharisees concerning four separate Sabbath days, and that is twice as many as any other gospel writer. Consider that. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and John, all of them believers with a Jewish background who were raised on Sabbath observance, each of them only records two altercations between Jesus and religious teachers concerning the Sabbath day. But here we have... Uh, Gentile Luke writing his letter, his book, uh, his gospel for a Gentile audience, and he records double. It's not, of course, a problem of amnesia. Rather, like so many things in the Bible, Luke records uh, these Sabbath interactions because they're important. I think especially for a Gentile writer, the Sabbath would have been something fascinating, something almost new in this, this biblical Christianity, this new religion that he's been pulled into, this relationship with Christ, and it would have been seen as something that it was a, a visible, tangible demonstration of how believers were following their Savior. 
keeping the Sabbath as Jesus kept the Sabbath, including featuring, really, acts of mercy towards the needy, it's always been a part of basic Christian piety. But when we try to figure out what that looks like, we can fall in it sometimes into errors. Regarding what is lawful on the Sabbath, we can turn the Sabbath into something it was never meant to be. So I think through the silence of these Pharisees on this last interaction, Luke is issuing a few warnings about how not to keep the Sabbath. We're going to see here two warnings. The first warning is that on the Sabbath day, it's possible to do the right things for the wrong reasons. The passage begins with Jesus enjoying a Sabbath day meal in the home of a prominent Pharisee. That's pretty typical, actually, on several different levels. It's typical for Jesus, who accepts hospitality from anyone who will invite him. Jesus knows what it is to, to dine with sinners and with tax collectors. He knows what it is to dine with, uh, with men like this one. We're told he's a, a ruler. He knows what it is to dine with important, pious-looking people. Jesus, whenever the, the invitation goes out, he never misses an opportunity to preach the gospel to a dinner party. And so that's typical. So Jesus would be with, uh, with Pharisees on the Sabbath. It's also typical for the man who is playing host to Jesus. Because according to Jewish social custom, hospitality was what you did on the Sabbath day, especially if you were an important person. If you were the kind of person, you had the kind of household that was full of servants. Well, it was your duty, in a sense, to fix a very large meal so that on the day of uh, of rest, you, you would fix it on the day of preparation so that on the day of rest, any travelers, specifically visiting teachers from other districts, would come and they would spend that day under your roof. It was a gracious thing. It was a godly thing. It was a way to minister to the needs of, of other Israelites at the time. It was a way so that God's people, no matter where they found themselves, no matter what needs they had bodily, physically, on the Lord's day, on the Sabbath day, uh, they could come together and feel the blessing of God's people. That was a good thing. But in this household, as we read, that is not what's happening. Read again, verse 1 tells us, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Now, sadly, this is typical as well. This is another element of deja vu in Luke's gospel. Back in chapter 6, during the second Sabbath altercation, Jesus healed a man with a withered hand. And there in chapter 6, verse 7, we read that the scribes and the Pharisees watched him. It's the same verb. The scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. Among the Pharisees, it seems to have become something of a standard procedure uh, that they kept their eyes on Jesus on the Sabbath. You knew what it was like. Jesus, uh, from watching him, seemed like he had this compulsion that if there were people in front of him who had needs, Jesus couldn't help but meet those needs. And so Sunday became the perfect day to nitpick Jesus' compassion because they had all their rules and all of their traditions and all of their teachings regarding the Sabbath, and maybe if they could get Jesus caught up in something that they could run off and accuse him with, perhaps it would happen on the Sabbath day. And so they had their eyes on him, and it was a betrayal. Obviously, it was a betrayal of Jesus, but it was also a betrayal of the Sabbath. You know, most commentators think uh, that this banquet was actually meant to be a trap, that this was set from the very beginning. Here was another public opportunity uh, to witness Jesus breaking tradition. And if that's the case, then, the, the outward appearance 
Uh, despite that outward appearance, the act of hospitality that he's been invited to actually is full of animosity. The banquet was never actually meant to minister to Jesus and to his physical needs. It was only meant to, to further their own agenda and to meet their own purposes. Well, when you look through the Old Testament in the Gospel of Isaiah, chapter 58, Isaiah summarizes what breaking the Sabbath is all about. And here's what he says in verse 13. It's about going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure. Well, that's what these Pharisees were doing. They were doing all the right things. They were opening their home. They, they had hospitality. They invited Jesus. They prepared a meal. They had him sit down, maybe in one of the places of honor. And it all looked so good from the outside, but they were really seeking their own pleasure. They were really just serving themselves. And it's possible on the Lord's today, day to do the right things for the wrong reasons. We can fall into the same sort of uh, behavior, the same sort of pattern, even if we're not laying a trap for Jesus. I've had more than a few conversations with Christians who, who suddenly feel that on the Sabbath day and the Lord's day, they also should show hospitality. That's a wonderful thing to do. That's a gracious thing to do. What, what better opportunity to share the blessings the Lord has given to you? What better opportunity than to invite other believers into your home and to have spiritual conversation with them? And I realize that the, the pandemic has done all sorts of other things to our hospitality, and there are other barriers that we're trying to figure out. But so often, when, when folks are, are following Christ and they're convinced of this need to show hospitality, this biblical command to show hospitality, and they want to use the Lord's day for that, so often that impulse either gets derailed or it gets hijacked. And it almost always happens because we begin thinking of how can I put out a spread that will make sure that my guests are impressed or that they'll think that I'm at least competent. And so hospitality becomes not about meeting the needs of the person, but in some small way about showing off for ourselves. And we can do the right things for all the wrong reasons, and, and we can do it in, in different directions. Think about how many times we don't open our homes on the Lord's Day because we feel like sandwiches are too humble. Or if we slave away on Sunday dinner, or we make our wives slave away on Sunday dinner just so that our guests will feel impressed. But when that happens, whose pleasure are we seeking? It's possible on the Sabbath to do all the right things for the wrong reasons. It's also possible on the Sabbath to do the wrong things for the right reasons. Now, under the watchful gaze of the Pharisees, Luke introduces uh, a new guest to the banquet. He says... In verse 2, behold, there was a man before him, that is, before Jesus, who had dropsy. We don't know how he got there. Maybe it is, as many commentators have suggested, that he was invited by the Pharisees to help them set their trap. Or it could be, like the sinful woman back in chapter 7, that, that he heard Jesus was there, and so he had to crash the party because somebody could help him, and that somebody was Jesus. Either way... Luke is setting the stage here, and the Pharisees are on high alert, and there's a man in need of healing, and all eyes are on Jesus to see what he's going to do. There's a man with dropsy. Now, what the first century knew as dropsy, doctors today call edema. It's a blanket term. Uh, it's a symptom term. It, it basically means swelling, swelling of any kind. It could be it could be simple swelling because you've had too much salt in your diet. It could, be, it could be something much more severe. It could be an indication of organ failure. And in those serious cases, 
uh, it would have been perhaps like this man. It would have been visible. Everybody would have seen him and known that he was swelling. His legs and his hands, his, his neck, his knees would be puffy and, uh, and his skin would be stretched so that it's shiny and painful even to move. And so this man's dropsy was probably the serious kind because everybody could see that he was suffering, Jesus included. And Jesus responded, notice that word in verse 3. Uh, Jesus responded with a question. Verse 3, Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now he responded, even though, of course, the Pharisees and the lawyers hadn't said anything. But like one of the other Sabbath uh, interactions that we read about in chapter 6, verse 8 tells us Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew when they were watching him and what they hoped to do. He knew their silent intentions, and so he issued a challenge to expose exactly what they were after. And the question that Jesus asks has shown up in the gospel already, and really it's, it's pretty simple. <laughs> it's dead simple. If they're willing to take it at face value, of course it was lawful. Yes, it was lawful. Jesus wasn't asking them, hey, what do you think about doing a little carpentry on the side? Do a, do a little side job, maybe, uh, maybe a little bit of government work on, on, uh, on Sunday. Is that lawful? Can we do that? Jesus, he isn't asking whether he's able to charge somebody for physical therapy on Sunday. There's, there's nothing in God's law. There is no restriction in God's word that would keep him from giving charitable healing on the Sabbath day. It was a simple question, but it put the lawyers in a difficult situation. You see, if they agreed that it was lawful to heal the man, then they would look soft on law enforcement. And that ran counter to everything that the Pharisees stood for. They had built their entire identity on being those who care about God's law. They, they take God's law seriously. They take God's law so seriously that they have built up all of these hedges and all of these other regulations to keep people from getting too close to God's actual law. So we'll keep them away with a few man-made traditions. And this question of whether it's lawful to heal, well, it, it tempted them to strip away all those extra-biblical commandments and to trust that God's word could stand on its own. But uh, if they said that it was not lawful to heal, then they would simply look cruel. Here was a man who obviously needed help. And could they possibly be so heartless as, as to deny him help from someone who could help him? Everyone could see that something needed to be done, and would they stand by and let him suffer? And so Jesus' question challenged them, either to abandon their stringent standards or to expose their heartless hypocrisy. And they wouldn't want to do either. And so, verse 4 tells us, they remained silent. I think it's easy for us to read passages like this uh, and, to, and to criticize the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. It's easy for us to judge their blind spots uh, without remembering how much we probably would have had in common with these people. Especially we, we conservative Presbyterians who care so much about God's word. We can forget that the Pharisees got into this mess, at least some of them at some time got into this kind of a mess, because they wanted to protect God's standards against uh, the erosion that was happening in their religion. Phariseeism began as a reform movement. It was a, it was a conservation effort against spiritual compromise. And that is undoubtedly a good thing. 
maybe you remember what Paul, who was also a former Pharisee, said about his fellow Jews in Romans chapter 10, verse 2. He said, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. I think that's what's happening here in this conflict over the Sabbath. There's pride, there's, there's selfishness, there's a, there's a callous heartlessness to, to God's compassion, but underneath their cold-hearted treatment of this man, I think these lawyers actually think that they're doing a good thing. They think they've got all the right motivations. They think that they are protecting the word of God. They're doing all the wrong things, but it feels to them like they've got all the right reasons. And we can do the same. I've seen Christians, and I bet you have too, who have become convinced of the necessity of keeping the Sabbath day. And sometimes, like when you hear people speaking about when they first became Reformed, it can almost seem like a second conversion. Well, I was, I was born again when I was 17, but I became Reformed when I was 25, and wow, my eyes opened. And then I became a Sabbatarian when I was 28. And we talk about it that way, and you can watch sometimes the pendulum of, of keeping God's law, which, which is a good thing, of, of caring about God's moral law. The Sabbath, of course, is part of God's moral law. It's not ceremonial. It's not judicial. It wasn't given just to Israel. It's a creation ordinance. It's given to all people to reflect God's character, and that's a good thing to want to keep one day in seven separate for rest and for worship. It's a great thing, but sometimes you see people who get convinced of keeping the Sabbath day, and that pendulum of zeal for keeping the Sabbath day swings wildly into legalism. I've watched parents exasperate their children. I have watched grown children ignore their parents. I've watched Christians be rude to their neighbors all in the name of keeping the Sabbath. I bet you have too. I have seen plain old Christians construct extra-biblical shalls and shall-nots to guard their hearts on the Lord's Day, which may be for them and in their situation could be a good thing, could be a good thing for them, but then sometimes I've watched them hold up those standards as a sort of legalistic litmus test to see how well everybody else loves Jesus and if they love Jesus as much as we love Jesus. More often in my own heart, I've seen a tendency to justify indulgence and idleness. And then I turn around and say, well, at least I'm not working. At least I'm not like that guy who's out there cutting his grass. Can you believe that on the Sabbath day? And that's how it works. We, we do sometimes all of the wrong things, but we think we've got all the right reasons. Brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be. These are the warnings that Luke gives us, that it's, it's possible on the Lord's Day to do the wrong things for the right reasons, and it's possible on the Lord's Day to do the right things for the wrong reasons, and wretched hypocrites that we are, who will save us from this body of legalism? Thanks be to God in Christ who has given us an example of what the Sabbath day is supposed to be about. And so to these two warnings, I think Luke is also giving us a principle, a positive teaching about the Sabbath day. And it is that on the Sabbath, love is always lawful. That's really the main point of this whole passage. And if there's anything that you could take away from what we see about Jesus and his interaction here and his interaction in three other places in Luke's gospel is that 
On the Sabbath day, love is always lawful. That's the positive teaching here. And Jesus shows us this truth in the remaining verses in a demonstration of love and another challenge to the Pharisees. Consider what Jesus does in verse 4. Now, if it's true, as we suggested, as many uh, scholars have pointed out, if it's true that this man is here just to set a trap for Jesus, then that man really isn't being cared for at all. He's not being loved. His, his needs aren't being met. He's simply being paraded. If it's true, then he's been brought in simply as a theological prop. And Jesus, on the other hand, refuses to allow this man to become a theological talking point. You notice how quickly it happens. Over against uh, the, the silence of the Pharisees, they're standing around, remaining silent. Verse 4, then he took him and healed him and sent him away. It's quick. It's decisive. It's a demonstration of love. Jesus heals him and then, and then sends him away. He won't allow him to stand there anymore as some sort of... Uh, uh, visual aid to what his point is supposed to be as the Pharisees are doing. He heals him and he sends him home so that he can deal with his opponents later. Now as a side note, could you imagine seeing a miracle like this? This man was so swollen that everybody could see that he was suffering. And as it happens with Jesus, not just on the Sabbath day, but especially on the Sabbath day, Jesus doesn't use miracles and healings. It's not some theological point. It's not some psychological trick just to draw a crowd. On the Sabbath day in Luke's gospel, Jesus has cast out demons, healed fevers, uh, healed withered hands. He straightened a woman who was bent over double by a debilitating spirit. And here now is this man who's, who's bloated and swollen, and in an instant, immediately, Jesus heals him, and everyone could tell that he was healed. He could get up, he could walk, he could go about his way without pain. And Jesus healed them all, often without being asked. On the Sabbath day, Jesus took initiative to touch these people and to speak to them and to restore their broken bodies. And when he did it here, what everybody noticed was his love for needy people. But then... Once this man is off the stage, Jesus aims the spotlight at the Pharisees. Verse 5, he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that's fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? Now this is a pretty simple question too. But to ask it was to answer it. There was no father in that room. There was no mother in that room who could possibly be so heartless as to see their child in danger, even on the Sabbath day, and to turn their head and say, I'm sorry, you've got to wait. You've got to wait until sundown. We can't do anything about you. We can't help you out now. I care about you, but I'm going to leave you there. That's what Jesus is bringing out. It's a question, how much do you love these people? Could you really be so cruel as to leave your son in danger, even an ox, even a donkey? Now, there is this, this great history in the Old Testament where God's people are taught by the Lord to have compassion even on animals. It wasn't even just about what you can gain. Yes, an ox in, in this time was an enormous financial investment, a huge financial investment. But as you turn to God's word in the Old Testament, God's people are told that if they're walking and they see another person's ox, another person's donkey, who's stumbled and fallen down under its burden in the road, they have to stop and help that animal, even if it belongs to someone who hates them. There's compassion here. 
if not compassion for your children, at least compassion for other living beings. At least, at least an ox or a donkey or a beast of burden would, would elicit that impulse, that unflinching reflex to pull them out of danger. Well, the key word in verse 5 is that word immediately. And the implication here of Jesus' challenge is that when you see someone you care about suffering, you deal with their needs first and then work out the theology. It doesn't go the other way around. You don't sit there twiddling your thumbs and say, well, I'm not sure if I can help you. I see that you're in real bind now. I know that I can do something, but I don't know about you, and I don't know about now. Charity and love for neighbor are never against the law of God. And what legalism does is it stands on the sidelines and it debates how far we should go to care for the needy. Genuine love doesn't work that way. Genuine love answers the debate with immediate, tangible ministry to alleviate human suffering. Now that might sound abstract, but Jesus has just given them an example of what that looks like in real time. Jesus loved this man. As a child of God, he took him. The word there actually is used most other places in the New Testament, and maybe your translation has it, that he took him in his hands. He laid his hands on him. He took him to himself. He took him, and he healed him, and he sent him away, and then he left the legalists to quibble over the finer points of Sabbath regulations. But in the face of Jesus' mercy, the debate was already over, and his love had triumphed. And verse 6 tells us, they could not reply to these things. Well, folks, this is the pattern that we, we find, and this is the pattern, really, that the Christian church has received and lived out for 2,000 years of Sundays. It is no coincidence that after the death and after the resurrection of Jesus, the earliest believers began worshiping on the first day of the week. And they took a day when they were able to, when the government, uh, if it wasn't a totalitarian regime, they took a day for rest, they took a day for worship, they took a day for acts of mercy on the first day of the week. It was how they commemorated what Christ had done for them. And so the day of resurrection became the Christian Sabbath. The day that believers paused to remember that all of the law of God had been fulfilled in Jesus' love for his children. And over the next... 100,000 some odd Sundays, Christians have interacted with the Sabbath. They've kept the Sabbath in a variety of ways. Sadly, and I think increasingly, many Christians have abandoned the Sabbath. They're done with it. They've washed their hands of, of the whole idea because it's seen as something that's antiquated or something that has been abolished or something that's just simply inconvenient. Maybe on Sunday, maybe on the Lord's Day, we can make it to church then the rest of the day is a free-for-all. Catch up on, on your work or your play. You can just sit around doing nothing if you'd like to. Other Christians become obsessed with the Sabbath. And when they become obsessed with the Sabbath, they typically become, like the Pharisees, obsessed with what everybody else is doing on the Sabbath too. And they make their list, and they look across their neighborhood. They look across the pews of their church. And they evaluate who's doing the right thing and who's doing the wrong thing. They become experts in, in Sabbath compliance and they learn how to justify their own, their own exception clauses when it suits them. But then there are other Christians. 
There are Christians who are too busy loving God and loving neighbor to worry about whether it's lawful to open their homes and to give of their time or to make a meal for a shut-in on a Sunday. So I think this is what's missing in most of our discussions about what's lawful on the Lord's Day. I think typically when we think about Sunday and what it's for and what we ought to do with it and what's lawful and what's good, we tend to be more like the Pharisees and we focus on what we cannot do. That's out, that's out, that's out, that's out. And we make our list and we say, I'm going to keep the Sabbath by not doing these things. That's a start. But actually, Scripture is overwhelmingly positive. It's a positive command, that fourth command. It's not a thou shalt not. It's a thou shalt. Remember the Lord's day to keep it holy. It's a positive command for all of creation. And for two millennia, Sunday has been a positive command. It's been a day of active mercy for the Christian church. Christians for 2,000 years have been wrapped up in, in how can we use this day to bless our neighbors and to glorify the Lord and to build up ourselves in our own faith and to build up those around us. And Sunday's been a day for orphan ministry and nursing home ministry. It's been a day for feeding the poor before the government can get to them. It's been a day for visiting that lonely neighbor with a word of gospel encouragement and maybe prayer if you're so bold. It's been a day for writing a card to send to the missionary that we've been praying for. It's been the particular day out of the week that believers turn to the New Testament and wonder, how can I show hospitality and contribute to the needs of the saints? It's happened historically for the church on the Lord's Day, not because this is how we work our way into the kingdom, but because of what Christ has done for us already. A question for you, what is, what is lawful on the Lord's Day? How do we keep the Sabbath day holy? We don't do it by pursuing our own pleasures, turning the day into a day for idleness, a day for indulgence. Neither do we do it by inventing hypocritical boundaries and applying them to ourselves and, more often than not, applying them to everybody around us. We keep the Sabbath holy by taking rest to worship God who's loved us in Jesus Christ and by following his example to show mercy to those in need. This is Luke's final word on the Sabbath. And it is that on the Lord's day, love is always lawful. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for this portrait of Christ that we have seen. We thank you for his compassion, not only to those uh, who were needy physically, but needy spiritually, compassionate toward us, that he gave of himself and poured himself out so that we may have life with you. Oh, gracious Father, as we come to your table, we pray that we would meditate on Christ's mercy to us, and that you, by your spirit, would allow us to follow his example. Give us love for one another. Give us care and concern. Help us to know what it is to, to begin to partake even of that eternal Sabbath rest that you have worked for your people through Jesus Christ. Help us to take part in it even now as we come to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.